We're going to read some Bible together. As Ben said, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 5. You'll turn there. You can read with me. 2 Corinthians 5. I'll begin in verse 11. And then after I read this, I'll pray for us. 1 Corinthians 5, verse... Sorry, 2 Corinthians. What am I talking about? 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 11. Here's what God has for us this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray together. God, help us. I pray that You would open the eyes of our heart. Give us ears to hear from Your Word today knowing that we are powerless, impotent to take on our true foes in this world, the spirits of evil, Satan himself, and also the broken carnage of this fallen world. We need Your Spirit. We can't do it alone, so I pray that by Your Spirit You will teach us, grow us up, show us a bigger Jesus, show us Your glory in Christ through the text today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You might remember a couple of weeks ago that as we were going through our summer together in our sermon series, we did a series all about Jesus, where we looked at different things about Jesus. And the final one we did was His return, His second coming. Specifically, how in His second coming, He was going to renew all things. He was going to put death down. He was going to kill death. And then life would reign. We talked about that just two weeks ago. Within the context of this week, that truth was very sweet to me. It seemed like one of those weeks where lots of death was in the media this week. Uh, Even in Hollywood, 89-year-old actress Lauren McCall died this week. Uh, Last Saturday, you might have heard about the professional race car driver, dirt track racer, his name was Kevin Ward Jr., got out of his car and was hit tragically by another, another car, and he died. And then famously, comedian Robin Williams died at age 63 due to causes from depression and other vices. It's just one of those weeks when in the news you were like, oh, this is just heavy, heavy. And sometimes a person's death can actually change the way you begin to live your life. The big uh, social media phenomenon right now is the ice bucket challenge. You've seen this. So for Lou Gehrig's disease, you will agree to have somebody dump ice on you and just freeze to death, or you donate money to the charity. Either one. A lot of people are doing that because they know people who have died from Lou Gehrig's disease, so they're willing to make this change. Even more substantially, you've probably been following, as I have, the shooting death of Michael Brown, the tragic death in Missouri, and then all the riots and everything that's going on after that, you can see how people who didn't even know Michael Brown are having their lives changed because of his death. And of course, as Christians, 
Our identity is wrapped up in the death of another person, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today, specifically how the Apostle Paul could look back on the death of Jesus and how that shaped the course of his life, how that changed the things that he did, especially in light of people who didn't know Jesus. Well, that's where we're going to be going today. The big banner thought that we are going to have and looking at Christ's death is going to be this, if you're taking notes. Christ's death is going to be our model and our mission. Christ's death as our model and our mission from 2 Corinthians 5. So the first point, Christ's death is our model. Now, wait a minute, that sounds a little strange. Someone's death being our model. What do you mean by that? I I saw this week a flyer for a church. And you know how churches have uh, slogans or mottos here at TCC. Ours is treasure Christ, pursue community, love the world. We said that over and over again because we put some thought into it as pastors and what we want everybody to be thinking about. Well, I saw another church's flyer this week, and they had their motto. Uh, This is Timberlake Church, not Justin, I hope. Timberlake Church has as their motto, casual atmosphere, serious faith, and no weird stuff. That's what they put as their slogan. A promise to have no weird stuff. And when I read this text, I thought, oh, Jesus' death as our model. That sounds weird to have a torturous death as your model. So how can we explain this? Well, we'll find the answer here in 2 Corinthians. Before we jump in, some context, because this is a part of a larger book. If you read 2 Corinthians before, you'll know that Paul spends a lot of time talking about and defending the fact that he's a true apostle. He's got people who oppose him, people who don't trust or treasure Jesus, and they have rebelled against him, and the church called him the rebels, the rebellion, and they're going around teaching things differently than Paul. So he has to defend his authenticity as an apostle, and therefore also that his, by extension, his gospel is true, that he's got the real stuff, the true gospel. So God is not pleased by the rebellion of some turning away from the true gospel. Paul, on the other hand, is spending a lot of time trying to please God, as he says in the text today. And if you read Paul before, you know that he is motivated oftentimes by what we might call the glory of God or the beauty of God in the gospel. But in this text, the little distinctive, and we're going to read and see if you can tell what is motivating here, beginning in verse 9. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Now, this is in the middle of another discussion about uh, what happens when you die. So he says in verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, meaning whether we're living or we're in the next life, we're in this life or the next life, home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, to please God. Why? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. See what His motivation here in this text is? For pleasing God, He's got a vision, He's got an acknowledgement, a presence of the coming wrath of God in Jesus. And that's why He's aiming to please God with His life. So when He's looking at the beauty of Jesus, that's the positive 
positive motivation for pleasing God, but he also has room for kind of a negative motivation, meaning that if he doesn't please God, he will get these negative consequences. And that drives him to do something, as we will see. He's living his life saying, the judgment of God is coming, and that's going to drive me to live a certain way. Look in verse 11. Therefore, knowing that the judgment of Christ is coming, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Because of the severity and the certainty of the coming judgment of Christ, Paul endeavors to convince others to persuade them that he's a true apostle and that he has the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because believing in that gospel is the only way they're going to be saved from the coming wrath of Christ. And so to trace the flow so you don't miss it, imagine Paul viewing the coming of the wrath of Christ and wanting to shield people from it. Right? So he's going to live his life in such a way to shield people from the coming wrath of Christ. And what's going to be his model, we see here in verse 14. I'm putting forth the notion that Christ's death is his model for loving people, for shielding them from the coming wrath of Jesus. Read verse 14 with me. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. And then he goes on, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But notice here, Paul says, the love of Christ controls us, your version might say, compels us, depending on what you're reading. Both are probably true. But the picture is, he's remembering how Christ came, gave up his own life so that people might be spared from the wrath of God. And he's saying, man, was that loving. So loving an example that I'm going to change the way I have lived. I'm actually going to let His love control the way that I live my life. Arlington National Cemetery, the favorite place of mine to visit when I go to Washington, D.C. And when you go there, you, you talk to different people, and everybody's always impacted just by the presence of visiting the military cemetery there. One guy named Andy Sprouse invites us to consider the sacrifice of our military in this poem. I'll read this poem to you. Sprouse writes, Down the somber road, reflective feet tread, seeking friends, family, or simply to respect those who gave all, regardless of race, gender, creed, religion, or homestead, Ever onward kin they are, ever together they stand tall. Never forget why they're in those green fields, the battlefields they cross, the kin they left behind to grieve and remember. Regret young and old, gone too soon, innocent and family, forever lost. But don't begrudge their sacrifice. With our lives burns their eternal ember. Poets throughout the ages have been moved by the sacrifice seen in war. How much more moving is it for Paul to ponder the sacrifice of Jesus like exponentially to the billionth power more of an ultimate sacrifice. And Paul is doing this. He's walking around pondering the loving sacrifice of Jesus for his people and that compels him forward as he's leading his life. Um, He's talked about this to another church too, the church in Philippi that we have a record of in the book of Philippians. Listen to what he says about Christ's love here and how it should motivate us. Here he gives the actions first and the motivation second. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 reads like this. 
Paul says to the church there, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That would be the opposite of love, right? But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's love defined. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The church at Philippians, he says, look at the death of Jesus. Consider the humble love shown therein. Allow that to motivate you towards humility. Similar theme that's coming out here in 2 Corinthians 5. Back in our text, notice how Christ's death, he says, controls what he does. The love of Christ controls me. And he mentions very subtly a couple of ways in the text that the death of Christ is controlling his life. Uh, we don't have time to read the entire book of Second Corinthians. And so part of this is in the context of the book. But I'll explain it to you. Look in verse 12. He's going to give two evidences of Christ's love controlling him. Two, two instances in which Christ's love is controlling Verse 12. We're not, com- we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So there he's given one way in which the love of Christ is controlling him. See that phrase when he says, I'm going to give you cause to boast about us. What he means is in the church of Corinth, remember what I explained earlier, there's a group of rebels that are going around saying, we have the truth, Paul does not. We're true apostles, this guy Paul is a sham. And the way they are doing this, if this sounds familiar, they are saying, look at our paycheck. Look at how much money we have. Surely that proves that we are of Christ. Or look at our connections. Look at our letter reference. That's what we have. What does Paul have? Or look how we have not suffered. And look at Paul over there. He's been suffering. Surely our gospel is true. Surely you should be following us. Right? But Paul says, here, I'm going to change my life so you'll have something to truly boast about against that. You'll have ammunition to fire back when these phonies start preaching this false gospel. And what he actually did, we found out in other parts of the book, is he actually gave up being paid to preach the gospel. So he gave up his financial means to live, being paid for his vocation. He was willing to say, okay, if it even takes me working for free, I'll do it. I'll give that up so that I can be an example of love and so that you can look at me and see the true gospel. That'll show what's in my heart. And when people start boasting about who, who's the real apostle, show them that. Show them the guy who gave up money and actually suffered for it. And that'll be the way of Christ. That'll show the suffering of Christ. So there's an example of how the love of Christ controlled him. He was even willing to give up his paycheck so that he could show the glories of Christ off to people who did not know him. A phenomenal example of how the love of Jesus controlled him to say, Dad, don't, don't pay me anymore. I'll be fine. I'll make it. I'll, I'll get another job. Don't pay me. And that was a loving act. Another thing that sticks out here is in verse 13. Another way that he set aside something 
an act of love in order to care for other people. Again, it's kind of subtle, but I'll explain it. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What does that mean? Well, he's, when he says this expression, if we are beside ourselves, he's using an expression similar to that, saying it is for God. Earlier in his earlier letter, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, Paul talks about the idea that he has received a gift from God to speak in tongues and also visions. So he's referring to his devotional life in which he can speak in tongues and also see visions. And people have asked him about that and he said, that is for God. That is for God. But in this verse, he's implying that he can set this aside in order to be in his right mind. So somebody might see him speaking in tongues or in a vision and be like, what's that about? You don't even look like you're in your right mind. But he's saying, I'm, I'm willing to set this personal, intimate time of devotion and personal worship with God aside at some points so that I can spend my time persuading others in my right mind, talking logically about the gospel of Jesus Christ so that some may come to Jesus. Now see how that's controlling him? He might would have rather to spend 24 hours a day in a vision, praying for a vision, speaking in tongues with God, but he's saying there are times when I'm putting this aside so I can spend my time persuading others of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. He's arranging his life in such a way that it will reflect the love that Jesus showed to leave heaven and rescue his people. The spiritual needs of others, another way of saying it, the spiritual needs of others are rising to the top as he looks at the gospel and saying, how can I love people like Jesus? He begins to say, oh, their spiritual needs are really important in my life. So, what can we take from this? How can we allow this truth, this practice of Paul, to impact us today? Well, last week, Sean preached on the idea of, at TCC, we're trying to be a family on mission. By family, we mean we want to be people who will love each other. We want to be people who are um, meeting each other's needs, crying when there's distress, but also taking joy in the victories that we see, eating together, intimate friendships, accountability. We try to do some of that through community groups. And Sean preached about how we divide up into groups and we try to be family together. But we're also trying to be not just family for family's sake, but also families on mission together. So how can we use our community groups to provoke this type of love for one another and love for the lost world that Paul seems to have here? Well, there's a different way. Let me share how different groups have done this together. Some groups have used community group time. Every so often they will go to the park together. And uh, they're not doing it just to play ball. They might play ball. They're doing it to meet people and begin relationships with lost people who don't go to church so that they can share with them about Jesus. Other people are pursuing more life-on-life type of opportunities. What I mean by that is they're getting together and saying, hey, uh, do you ever eat out? Yes, I eat out once a week. Hey, let's go together and let's go to the same restaurant so that we might know the server. He's bound to be lost, probably. After we get this relationship, we can begin to share Jesus with this guy that we see all the time. Or let's go to the grocery shopping at the same time each week together so that we might engage the lost world. 
Other groups are sharing testimonies. There's testimonies of how God and the Gospel seeped in. Hey, I was talking to my unsaved family member this week and here's a grace that God gave me to share a good word about the Gospel and here's how I did it. Uh, some groups are, are really being stoked by just discussing as a part of their group time different barriers to evangelism or different ways to share Jesus. So you might come and say, hey, there's several barriers when I try to evangelize. I have a job, you know, and when I'm at my job, I'm supposed to be working. So how in the world am I supposed to talk to these people without being goofy and awkward about Jesus? And you can talk about this in community group, and chances are you'll get an answer clearer with ten people instead of one person. And so we need each other's help is the point I'm getting at. And we can use our community groups, our family time, not only for family time, but also to stir up and motivate us to greater evangelism. So Christ's death is our model for love. He's looking at the death of Christ and how Christ pursued people and gave up something to rescue people. And Paul is saying, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to give up something. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe I'm going to use a hobby. Whatever. He's making it a point to meet the spiritual needs of others, particularly these people who don't trust in Jesus. So Christ's death is our model for love, but His death is also what empowers our mission. Here's a couple of ways from the text that Christ's death empowers our mission. First off, it frees people, the death of Jesus, frees people to live for others instead of sin. Frees people to live for others instead of sin. When the Apostle Paul remembered the death of Jesus, he didn't look at it only as a loving example of how to pour out your life for others. He also knew what the death of Jesus accomplished. Let's read here what the death of Jesus accomplished from verse 14. I already read the first half of verse 14. And here is the last half. He said that one has died for all. That one is Jesus. That Jesus has died for all. Therefore all have died. What does that mean? Jesus has died for all of these people who turned to Him. Therefore these people have died. Huh? Is that right? It's supposed to be He dies and you live, right? But Paul is saying He died so that all of these people could die. What in the world does that mean? Well, if we skip back a couple of chapters, we get some insight into what he means when he says, Jesus died so that all these people could die. So let's look back. Chapter 3, verse 15. Paul takes a story from the Old Testament that you might remember when Moses was communing with God and what happened? God gave him a glimpse of His glory and through Moses' person, his face was shining with the glory of God so much that it was dangerous to even be near the dude. So what did he do? He put a veil on his face so that people wouldn't be blown away by seeing the glory of God on his face. And so Paul looks back at that and he begins to explain this concept of uh, something dying when Jesus came to save His people. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3 with me if you want to turn back. Paul says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts of people. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he's using this image when he's talking about one man Jesus came to die and in that death all of his people died. He's saying what died was this this covering of the glory of God. Think of taking the veil off and throwing the veil away. This being hidden from God's glory died. He says it clearer in Romans 6, perhaps, without the analogy. Sometimes it's just better to hear straight talk. Romans 6, verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. There's that death. So in the death of Jesus, what died? Well, your old self that could not see the glory of God. That's what was put to death in the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 6, he continues, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul is equating this idea that in Christ's death our old self dies and that's the same as being freed from sin. So dying to self equals freedom from sin. Why do we have to die to self? Because of the wicked, damaged hearts of men who have wills who won't naturally be inclined to worship Jesus. That part had to die in order that people are freed from it, freed from the captivity to their own will, which would hide themselves from the glory of God. Christ's death made them alive and free from sin. I read an old excerpt from the New York Times this week. I'm going to read it, and you try to figure out what event they're talking about. They're talking about an event that happened in the House of Representatives that made everybody go crazy February 1st. You can probably guess it, but 1865, February 1st. When the presiding officer announced that the resolution was agreed to, the enthusiasm of everybody present knew no bounds. And for several moments, the scene was grand and impressive beyond description. Apparently, these congressmen were going crazy. No attempt was made to suppress the applause, which came from all sides, everyone feeling that the occasion justified the fullest expression, approbation, and joy. What was it they were talking about that made everybody elated in Congress? Well, it was the passing of the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. Uh, Later, within the next 10 months, all the states in the Union, including, uh, including North Carolina, were able to ratify this. And so slavery was ended forever in the United States. People were freed. And the fact of Jesus' death is the same. He is the amendment that declares the end of slavery for anyone who turns to Him. Your slavery to your own sin can be abolished, just like in this amendment. Now Paul goes on to explain that those who believe in the death of Jesus died to sin and they were raised to a new life. He uses different words in verse 17 in our text. He says, therefore, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away and the new has come. So all of this is to help us understand verse 14, when Jesus says, by the power of his death, something died, people died. What he's meaning is, you're dying to your enslavement of sin. Your slavery is dead. Now you're alive to praise 
God. Now keep reading in verse 15. Because he explains here why that slavery died. If you're following. Verse 15. And he died for all so that those who might live might no longer live for themselves but for him. That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him that who for their sake died and was raised. So he's saying you, you don't have to live for yourself anymore. You can live for Jesus. That might sound initially like bad news, but it isn't as if I'm going to have to give up all my joys for something lesser. It's the opposite of that. You are going to be freed from these lesser joys that captivate you and you're now free to take your full joy in the beauty and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. How can we, again, try to apply this? Well, one way we can live for Him and for the message of Jesus today is to intentionally carry out His mission in our week. What would happen if in your community group you guys decided once a week, I'm going to try to do something intentional with the gospel to share evangelistically with someone who is lost? In 1961, there was a preacher named James Kennedy who had a church in Florida, a thriving Presbyterian church of 17 members. This guy had a really small church, and he came up with the idea of, what about if every week we went out and tried to be intentional together? And what happened was, over the period of six years, they saw 800 commitments to Jesus. The church size went from 17 to 1,600, and that was new believer growth, not transfer growth that we often see today. Now, I know that was the 60s, and we have a different context. His method was door-to-door evangelism. That was in in the 60s. It worked well, 60s, 70s, 80s. I'm not saying you have to do that today. What I'm saying is, consider the size. They had a group of 17 people about the size of your community group and they began to be intentional with the gospel and they went out and changed. His method is now used in every country now. It's a global phenomenon that was started and God blessed it that way. Uh, we can be intentional here with spurring each other on in our community groups for the sake of the gospel. Here's a second way that Christ's death empowers our mission. Just mentioned the first way here is the second way that Christ's death empowers our mission. Christ's death reconciles people to God. Christ's death reconciles people to God. Paul looks at the death of Jesus from another angle here in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me and we'll read it. Verse 18 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us with a message of reconciliation. Those two verses are about what? Reconciliation. You heard it four times in two verses. That's his point. He's implying that before the death of Jesus, there was a separation between man and God. And by using the word reconcile, that means that once 
They weren't separated. Something needs to be restored. When you say something needs to be reconciled, it means once we were together, now we're apart and we need to come back together. Well, what was it like when man and God were together? The Old Testament, one of the terms in the Old Testament for that is shalom, a a peace that reigned at one time between God and man. One writer, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., describes this state of peace as follows. He said there once existed a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as this Creator and Savior opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom He delights. That was a previous state of man with God before the fall, before people rebelled against Him when it was shattered. Only Christ can restore this shalom, this peace between God and man. And He does this in His death by granting His righteousness to the people He died for so that now they can come before God and be reconciled. They can be together again with God. I read in Rolling Stone magazine, they actually have a top ten, I was surprised to see the top ten messiest breakups of rock bands. So bands, messy breakups, they catalog them. One of the top ten was the group from the 70s called the Eagles. The Eagles was a rock band that was flying high, no pun intended. In the 70s, they were, you got it, they were doing really well in the 70s and they hit 1980 and all their personalities began to boil over to the point where they were almost about to quit. Well, the climax came when they were doing a benefit concert for a senator and and everybody in the band wanted to do the benefit, but one dude named Don, and they got to the benefit, and they were backstage, and the senator and his wife, big moment, came up to meet the band, and they were like, hey, hey, this is my wife, this is senator, this is my wife. And they came to Don and said, this is my wife, the senator's wife, and Don just blew her off and said something like, hey, good to meet you, I guess. And that incited all of the other band members, so much so that when they got on stage for the concert, as they were singing their song, the lead guy, Glenn, started counting down. And he said, eight. And then they would do a song. And he would say, seven. They would do a song. And he would say, six. And finally, when they got to four, he said, Four, four more songs until I go backstage and I whip you. So he said, we're going to brawl, speaking to his band member. And everybody was like, oh, they're fighting. Well, after that night, for 14 years, they never played together until 1994, when a country singer was going to cover their songs, he actually went to these band members and said, hey, I'm going to make a video. I know you guys don't like each other, but could you come together for one day to shoot this video? And they all come, kind of, they showed up, and through the efforts of that one guy, they were actually reconciled. In salvation history, Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring people back to God. There's a huge gap. More than 14 years. More than tempers between us and God. And Jesus in His death reconciled us to God. Amazing. And I know... We probably have some visitors here, some unbelievers here. You're always welcome at our church. And I just want to plead with you, if you consider Jesus, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you can be reconciled today with God. The separation that you feel between yourself and your Creator, 
that can come together in God if you cry out to Him and you will be saved. So I invite you to do that today if you are an unbeliever. You can trust in this reconciling Jesus Christ. Now I want to clarify something here in verse 19. Let's read 19. Because it's important for us to know that reconciliation did not end with the death of Jesus. There's still something going on here. Verse 19. Paul clarifies himself. He says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. That means not counting their trespasses against them. And He was doing something else. So in Christ, He was reconciling the world to Himself. And what? He was entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. He wasn't just suggesting to the Apostle Paul and his followers, "Eh, you might want to have this message. He was entrusting the message of reconciliation to Paul and the people of God. In verse 20, he says it even better, more clearer perhaps, Therefore... Because we've been entrusted with this message, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, what? Be reconciled to God. It was announced this July that for the first time in history, the United States doesn't have... um, enough ambassadors to fill up its embassies across the world. Over a quarter of our embassies are without an ambassador right now, and supposedly it's hindering our efforts to uh, work counterterrorism in Africa, to stop the uh, problem in Central America, of children fleeing for the borders, all kinds of ramifications of not having ambassadors in the embassy. And the reason for it, supposedly, is President uh, Obama has made suggestions for the ambassador nominees, but everybody's fighting in Congress and they're disagreeing. Democrats, Republicans aren't going to actually affirm his nomination. So John Kerry said, Secretary of State said, 42 of our 169 nations where the U.S. has embassies are without ambassadors. And then he said this. He said, we cannot lead if we are not there. And that's the idea. Christ is not here with us, but He left us here as His ambassadors to reflect His plan, His will to all of the lost world. You can't lead if there's no ambassador present. So again, how can we apply this notion of being ambassadors to Christ? Well, first... It's really good for you to understand yourself and how you best function evangelistically. You can talk about this with your group and then they can spur you on. Some of us prefer relational evangelistic. means that you want to have a relationship with people in your life and then ease the gospel in there in a natural way. So if you know somebody like that is prone to that in your community group, you can encourage them. Well, how about your kids' friends and their parents? Your kids' friends' parents, are, are they believers? How can you get to know them? How about your son's ball coach? Is he a believer? How can you get to know him? Uh, Have you talked to your cousin because you told me your cousin wasn't a believer? You can spur each other on with this type of conversation. Other people love to share in their neighborhood. You know, they've been planted in a neighborhood and they have a certain amount of people there. In community group, you can also spur these people on. Have you had a neighborhood event lately? Are you out in the yard? Did you see your neighbor? Yes. Were you able to just say something that might lead 
to an evangelistic conversation. That's a way we can help spur one another on. Other people love big events. And so at TCC, we try to have big events that would enable you to share your faith. We have an event at the State Fair every year where you can go and meet people and share Jesus with them. If you want to, we're having to follow a weekly event where we're bringing international students together who don't know Jesus so that you can relate to them and begin to share with them at some point. So we're making all kinds of efforts to have big events here so you can evangelize or meet people to share with. In community group, you can spur one another to take advantage of these opportunities. As we think about Christ as our model, I just want to close by looking in the book of Luke. We studied uh, in our community group the book of Luke recently, and it's amazing how many times we're, we hear of Jesus actually sharing the faith, preaching the good news over and over and over again as our model, as our master, He is preaching the good news. In Luke 4.18, the synagogue, He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Quoting the Old Testament Scripture there. Luke 4.43, He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns because that's why I was sent here, says Jesus. Luke 7, people from John the Baptist's camp had come to Jesus and said, Hey, what's happening here? Are you really the Messiah? He answered them and said, Yes, tell John that the blind can see now and the lame can walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf can hear. The dead are raised. But the final thing he says is, And the good news is preached to the poor. Luke 8 said, Jesus traveled from one town to another village. He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Over and over again we hear about our Christ, our Master, making a way to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so our question is, how much of our own personal following of Jesus even includes this aspect of sharing the good news for others? With a huge part of who Paul was, how much of who we are in our walk with Jesus involves this unction to share the good news with others? If you feel like, I don't do that much at all, it's okay. We have community groups. We have a structure where you can be spurred on. You can have accountability. You can have people praying for you as you attempt to go out and grow a little bit in sharing your faith together. And that's what we mean here at TCC when we use the language, let's be families on mission together. We're talking about people in community groups stirring each other up in such a way that mission will overflow from our love of the gospel and our joy in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, I pray for help. It's one thing to read the Scriptures about what You did in Paul's life. It's another thing, God, to actually go and share with someone about the glory. There's so many fears involved in that. There's so many barriers. And yet, You promise our joy will be great if we go and we share. So I pray for our community groups, our community group leaders. May they organize and strategize their group in such a way that People will be prone to share more. May we pray for one another in our community groups. May we discuss better ways to share all of this, God, so like Paul, we can warn people of the coming wrath of Jesus and give them hope in the righteousness of Christ. It's by this that they may live and be renewed and be released from slavery. So give us this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to